Welcome to another episode of the Tom Shimmer Podcast. Happy Monday, everyone. Hope everyone had a wonderful weekend. I'm on the road again this week, but very excited about this week because I have my first international trip since February of 2020. Uh, today, I'm in Eldridge, Iowa, working with North Scott High School, and then I drive back to Chicago uh, tonight where I'll be flying to Vienna, Austria, and I'll spend the next three days with the American International School of Vienna. I'll have Saturday free, and then it's flying straight back uh, to Arkansas. I'll be in Arkansas all next week. Very excited about this trip, uh, both, of course, for the work, but also the travel itself, for sure. A reminder that in less than a month, we'll have the Grading from the Inside Out two-day training in Minneapolis, December 1st and 2nd. Of course, there's a link in the show notes for that event if you want to check that out. Okay, thanks for tuning in again this week. A big welcome to any new listeners joining in for the first time, and a big thank you to longtime listeners. Of course, I appreciate all of you. This week, my guest is Laura Rizzo. Laura is a former high school counselor who's now a speaker, a teen coach, and a staff developer who focuses on social-emotional learning. I met Laura at the Teach Better conference uh, just under a month ago, so I'm really looking forward to this conversation with Laura. And in Assessment Corner this week, we have another listener question. This time it's a question about student engagement and standardized tests, so keep those questions coming. I love the questions. They really sort of get me thinking about different aspects of assessment. So that is today's plan. Let's get to it. conversation with Laura Rizzo is coming up. But first, don't add me. But I want to open this week by asking you a question. What is your relationship with educational research? I find that we as educators often have a peculiar relationship with educational research. On the one hand, we seem to like the research that supports our perspectives or our philosophy of education, while simultaneously we marginalize or even outright dismiss the research that doesn't confirm what we think or what we believe. Now, I remember being in this workshop a few years ago, and the topic, of course, was sound assessment practices, and we were focusing on our six tenets of assessment and going through them one by one and talking about the implications and the strategies and all of that. And of course, as I do that, I share what the research indicates and talk about the practical application of that research in sort of the implementation phase. So I was sharing the research on formative assessment and why the advocacy with formative assessment is to provide feedback in absence of grades and scores, and a woman in the workshop raised her hand. I call on her, of course, and she proceeds to say in front of the entire group, I don't really care what the research says. I've been doing my own research for the past 27 years in my classroom. Huh. Now, clearly, she didn't like the conclusions the clinical or the technical research was drawing, so she just decided to dismiss it and focus on what she's seen in her classroom. Now, I did proceed to tell her that that's not research, that it might not be transferable to other classrooms, there's likely to be confirmation bias, there'll be confounding effects, and all of that. Now, I was less direct than that, of course. I used a little bit more finesse when I was talking to her in the workshop setting, but that was, in so many words, what I basically told her. It's inevitable, as especially when I conduct workshops on grading. When you talk about grading reform, a common refrain is, where's the research? When we don't favor the change, or we don't like the idea being put forth, we put the new idea under three dimensions of scrutiny and pick it apart bit by bit. We take on, as Adam Grant refers to, the prosecutor role. 
Now, he referred to this in his book, Think Again, and I know I'm a little late to the party in reading the book as it came out in 2021, but I'm three chapters in and I'm already hooked. The book is fantastic. And it really does highlight so many things that we are trying to overcome when it comes to reforming our assessment practices. So when you are the prosecutor, Grant asserts, that's the person who, rather than being open to a new idea, they just spend all of their time prosecuting the new idea by trying to poke even the smallest holes in the idea. Anyway, there, there's so much about this book that I love that I'll probably end up bringing it back up in future podcasts as well, but I'm going to talk a little bit more about it as we go along. It's, it's making me think of so many different aspects of the work that we do, so stay tuned for that. <laughs> okay, anyway, somebody says to you, where's the research? And you say, here it is. And they say, I don't agree with its conclusions. Wait, what? Look, I, I'm not in the business of dis, you know discrediting someone's experience, but your experience is not research. I think experience is incredibly valuable when considering implementation choices. When thinking about how to operationalize the research, our experience counts a lot, but we can't conflate research and our classroom experience, right? You only have your experience, which is not necessarily transferable to others. I mean, it might be. In some cases, it, it could be, but you can't say definitively unless you have consistently control for all of the factors I mentioned earlier. Confounding effects, control group, sample size, all of those different things. So ask yourself, what is your relationship with educational research? We also know that research can evolve and change. That's true in any field. And in education, we have to be prepared to go, kind of go with the flow with the evolution of what the research is telling us is most favorable when it comes to student learning. But we have to start somewhere. We're either research informed or we're not. Personally, I think the latter is indefensible. Now, at the same time, educational research is not ironclad. When I think of research, I typically consume it this way. I always say the research gives us the most favorable course of action or the favorable practices given the largest numbers of students, but there are always exceptions to the rule. So while I do believe we need to be research-driven, I don't think we need to be overly orthodox since often, and stop me if you've heard this before on the podcast, so much of what we implement is context-dependent and nuanced. There are usually several implementation choices that are necessary, and, but at the same time, they don't compromise the essence of the research. It's kind of the spirit of the research, right? The spirit of the research, the big rocks, if you will, I think they need to be adhered to. And But inside of that, there are probably some negotiables within the nuances of what the research is telling us. But our relationship with research can be funny because when research emerges that challenges our widely held beliefs, it can make us feel a little bit uneasy. And it's really hard to question ourselves. So back to Adam Grant in his book, Think Again. Why is it so difficult for us to rethink our positions? Grant writes, quote, questioning ourselves makes the world more unpredictable. It requires us to admit that the facts may have changed, that what was once right may now be wrong. Reconsidering something we believe deeply can threaten our identities, making it feel as if we are losing a part of ourselves, end quote. Huh. Threatening our identities and losing a part of ourselves. 
Should our identity or our sense of self be connected to any practice? I'm not sure that's a healthy way to begin uh, or to exist. But if it is true, then it would explain why so many people have such a hard time letting go of practices or habits that are not supported in the research. Because those people, when they're confronted with it, they're not being asked or forced to question what they do. They're actually being forced or asked to question who they are. That's not easy. And it's quite predictable that anyone whose identity is synonymous with their teaching or assessment or grading practices would defend their identity, i.e. defend the status quo, they would defend their identity with great intensity. Maybe that's the issue. Maybe it's that we allow our professional identities to be defined by what we do, by our practices. Again, ask yourself, what is your relationship with educational research? Maybe take some time this week to reflect on this. How would you react if research emerged that overwhelmingly contradicted a strategy or a practice that you've been using for most of your career? Would you accept it? Would you adapt to it and then carry on? Now, I suspect many of you would. I think many of you truly would. And some of you right now might be thinking that you would because I present this to you as a hypothetical. But I also suspect that some of you may not react as simply or as easily as you might imagine. You might not find it so easy to let go of something that was so synonymous with who you are as an educator. So is your relationship with education research one of reflective objectivity, where you are in a continual state of reevaluating what you believe? Or are you instinctively defensive and dismissive when research counters a deeply held belief that you have? If we're going to make the claim that we're research-informed, research-based, or research-driven, or however you want to phrase that, then I think it begins with having a level of awareness about what our typical reaction is when evidence emerges that contradicts our practices, our, our current status quo, if you will. I think the first step to establishing a healthy relationship with educational research, where we are more objective and open to its findings, is to separate our identities from our practices. Who you are and how you teach are not the same thing. Joining me this week is Laura Rizzo. Laura is a former high school counselor who is now a speaker, a team coach, and a staff developer. She was born and raised in El Paso, Texas. Uh, Laura's life experiences relate to both youth and adults. Her messages on overcoming poverty, depression, alcoholism, an identity crisis, and a lack of self-love reaches the hearts of her audiences all over. She connects to youth through her own experiences, the things she's overcome, and she connects to adults through her transparency and her authenticity. And I met Laura at the Teach Better conference a couple of weeks ago. So Laura, uh, welcome to the uh, podcast. Thank you. I'm so honored and blessed to be here, Tom. Uh, it's great to have you here. Uh, listeners, uh, Laura typically goes by Rizzo. So I want you to know I'm probably going to call her Rizzo from now on, but I didn't want you to think I was being disrespectful by calling her her last name or whatever. But uh, it was it was great to meet you. We had a great conversation one night, and I certainly appreciated your your passion for 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 kids and for teenagers. 
I, I meant what I said when I said authenticity. So uh, I'm really looking forward to this conversation and it was great to connect with you. But Laura, before we, or Rizzo, <laughs> before we begin, um, the habit, you know, I got I to gotta work on that because I know that's no, how, you, how you, yeah, yeah it's all good. Um, so, you know, I gave a bit of the highlights, your high school counselor, et cetera, but, but tell us a little bit more about your journey. How, you know, where did you start your career? Maybe some life experiences, things that have led you to be who you are today and do the work that you do. Tell, tell us a little bit about that journey. So the journey is a very, very long journey that I used to not understand why I was going through the things I was going through until I became an educator. I never wanted to become an educator. My brother and sister were both teachers. Uh, when I was in high school, I said, oh, no way. Like, you know, it's not enough money. I, um, I, I wanted to be an FBI agent. I wanted to go out there. I saw a lot of shows, um, you know, police shows and whatnot. And I wanted to go out there and really make a difference in that field in law enforcement. Um, well, God had another plan for me. I I went through a lot as a kid, some of which I'll, I'll talk about later. But I went through a lot of as a kid to, to really find myself and to really find the, the love that I was missing as a teenager. There was a lot of things that surrounded me that I felt I needed to be different. I needed to fall into. I needed to to be something that I really didn't understand. And that identity crisis, I think, led to a lot of dominoes that needed to line up for me to one day have my life saved by Mothers Against Drunk Driving in 1999, completely saved my life. Uh, gave me love when I couldn't love myself and I completely transformed my life. And when I went off to college, I still majored in criminal justice. I majored in criminal justice because I wanted to be a cop, but little did I know that there was another plan. And, um, when I was going through the different police, uh, academies, Austin police department, San Antonio police department and the processes, I was also going through the process of having a backup plan in alternative certification. So I, I did my alternative certification in Houston. At this time, I lived in San Antonio, Texas. And when I did my alternative certification, we had a job fair. At that job fair was a, a, a school district um, in Pearland, Texas. It's right outside of Houston. And that was my plan B. I didn't think that that's something that I would end up doing. But somehow, some way, something pulled me in about things that they said about making a difference in kids' lives. Well, I ended up doing my plan B. And my first year teaching in 2006, my first year teaching, I put a group together just like I had when I was a kid called Youth Impact, where youth are talking to youth about making right choices, about being drug free, being alcohol free. And I ended up finding a calling for really relating to kids and helping them grow on a different level using the testimonies that of the things that I went through as a kid. So I, I taught, I taught for um, a year in Houston. I ended up missing my family too much in El Paso. So I moved back to El Paso, started teaching here in 07. Um, I did seven years as a middle school teacher. And then I transitioned into outside of education. I actually did leave education once before to work for teens in the driver's seat in San Antonio. So here I am. I'll, you know, San Antonio, Houston, El Paso, back to San Antonio, work for teens in the driver's seat, which is a, a statewide program that addresses and advocates for safe driving in the state of Texas. Worked for them for a year. Then I came back to El Paso again. So here we are again, back in El Paso. 
And I went back into the education field. I led some after school programs and then I became a high school teacher. And I had my admin degree this whole time in 2009 when I was only 26 years old. I, I got my administration degree. I wanted to be a principal. I wanted to be a leader. But I didn't see myself still working with kids as an administrator. So I really never you know, felt the need to use it. I had it, but I never really used it. So in 2017, I thought, ah, what's the next best thing to working with kids? And it was counseling. So I became a high school counselor in 2017. Uh, 2022, I uh, decided because in Texas, high school counseling is a lot of testing, a lot of, yeah. you know, college and career readiness, a lot of paperwork, a lot of making sure your kids are college ready, a lot yeah. of making sure that they're on the right track to graduate. So I was sitting in front of a computer for eight to 10 hours a day, just doing paperwork, data entry. And I thought to myself, man, what am I doing? I, I love working with kids. I love to talk to kids. But most of the time, I'm sitting behind a computer. And at that point, in July of this summer, it took a very, very big leap of faith for me to say, I've been speaking to kids outside of education. I've been speaking to kids in education. I Let me see what God has in store for me. So I completely left my job in July to pursue this full-time where now I can say to principals, I'm available whenever you need me and have more availability than when I was a counselor to be able to speak life into kids on a different realm. Yes, I'm still in education, but now I get to speak life to kids all over the city of El Paso and all over the state of Texas. It is clear to me based on our conversation and even more so based on the testimonials on your websites, the conversations, the interviews with some of the students that you've worked with, that you make a tremendous impact on them and that your connection to them is authentic and real. I keep coming back to that word and mm -hmm. I just think it describes you uh, in, in the perfect manner. So, um, you know, you've been led to this point and, and the impact that you're having for sure. And, and, and that leads me to think about your connection because I think you have such a connection to to youth. I think you have connection to teens specifically. And, and coming out of the pandemic, I know that so many educators right now are talking about how it seems like kids are more apathetic. Now, whether this is true or not, the perception is that kids are more apathetic about school than they ever have been. And, and it, it's, you know, it's, we, we can't paint all students with the same brush and, and, but, but, but there's something going on here. And I'm wondering from your perspective, what do you think's happening? Like well, this residual effect of the pandemic, it seems so obvious. Uh, and, and so many teachers are talking about it no matter where I go. So from your perspective, what are, what are, what are, where do you think this is coming from? And maybe the second part of that is, what can we do to try to mitigate some of that? So the, the first part of the question, I, um, I think I'm going to use, which I always do. I always, I, I try to analyze a lot what teaching is like now compared to when I first started teaching. Okay. When I first started teaching, we were told... Many, many programs, many places, many times I was told, you know, don't share too much of your life because you're not their friend. Well, long gone are those those times where that there's that line where you can't share just a little bit of yourself to be able to relate to them, to be able to teach them something about life. So I kind of never really followed that. And when I had those groups, when I had my youth impact group, I did share a little bit about my testimony to be able to grow them and to be able to, to tell these kids, yes, you can, and you will said, you know, you will do anything that you set your mind to do. 
So when I look at this question, I try to compare it to what schools were like before. And 10 years ago, my students 10 years ago that are now 25, 26 years old are living their dreams. They're living everything. They didn't have social media to get in the way of, oh, this is what I should be. This is what I shouldn't be. Or maybe I shouldn't go to school because I want to be an influencer just like everybody else. They didn't have social media and they're living their lives successfully. And I think they've, they've had to work through that to um, have those social interactions. So I think now this generation, we waited way too long. We waited too long to teach life before content. We waited too long to focus on social emotional learning. We waited too long to really teach the kids hearts before their minds. We waited too long, even though social emotional learning has been around for decades and the term has been around for decades. I really truly believe that we waited a very long time to make sure that there were SEL programs in place, that there were emotional intelligence programs in place. When I compare this generation to the generation I had more than 10 years ago, those kids are emotionally intelligent. They know how to overcome those obstacles that they're faced with. I have now nurses, teachers, educators, um, some administrators. I have kids that I had back then that are successful in doing what they set out to do because they didn't have anything else to get in the way. And during the pandemic, so many different outside factors got in the way of that connection. So many different factors got in the way of them learning where, well, I'm a, I'm a kid and I have the opportunity to either meet with my teacher via Zoom or I'm just going to get on my social media and see what the influencers are doing. And I'm not saying that influencers are a bad thing. Praise to them because through the pandemic, they grew their audience. They were able, you know, there's tons of kids out there that I look up to because they have an amazing following and, and, uh, you know, but, but influencers, I mean, they, you know, these kids had the opportunity to get on their phones and, and look at social media. I think kids now, don't see the need for that education anymore because there's so many other kids out there that haven't gone to school. They haven't gone to school to be who they are and love what they're doing. So I really think that, yes, the pandemic, um, we waited too long is what I'm going to say. We waited too long to address life before content and we waited too long and it took a pandemic for us to realize that we really needed to touch kids' hearts before teaching them anything academically. I always taught life before content as a teacher, before the term social emotional learning was so um, out there. I always taught life before content. And a lot of those kids are successful because of the culture that we had at the schools that I taught at. I hope that answers the question. No, it does. It does for sure. Um, you know, when you talk about social media, I, I don't know that any of us could have anticipated, you know, the onset of social media, the growth of social media, where it always seems like we're trying to catch up to the impact, the negative impact that social media can have. Certainly there's a lot to be liked and positive about social media. And, and if you have a balanced perspective and a healthy sense of self, then social mm -hmm. media can be really a fun thing to be a part of. But I think about for teenagers and, and especially, you know, Instagram, TikTok, uh, these platforms that really do have unintended or I don't know if they're intended or not. I'd, I'd hate to think somebody was that diabolical, but these consequences for young mm -hmm. people that maybe we didn't anticipate. And, and you're probably right that maybe we should have been more swift to move in and say, we need to, to make sure there's perspective here. Um, do you, do you look at social media as something that really has uh, been disproportionately responsible for where 
young people are today in terms of that negative sense of self and, and those negative sort of ideas about where they are? I think when I talk to kids, I, I all, I'm always proactive in saying you can use social media. There, there, there's two words that have gotten in the way of kids being who they want to be and really finding themselves. So I use those two words as social media. And I always tell these kids, no matter what, you can use social media to lift someone up or you can use social media to break someone down. Yeah. When I was young, there was no social media to for somebody. If somebody didn't like me, they had to come to my face and tell me they didn't like me. Now kids behind kids hide behind a camera. Social right. media can be an amazing influence if kids use it right. Yeah, it can be an amazing influence. And and when we're talking about you know what schools what schools can do to to mitigate this to to help with making sure kids love coming to school, hey, we need right. to catch up to what the kids like to do. Right. You, they like TikTok. I go, Tom, every school I went to speak at this week, little kids, kinder, first, second, third, fourth, fifth, all the way to eighth grade. I say the word TikTok and they start screaming. They go crazy. Yeah. I'm going to put you all on my TikTok. Yeah, miss, what's your TikTok? What's your TikTok? We have to catch up. I think yeah. schools need to catch up. And if y'all are listening out there and you're not catching up to what it is that interests these interests uh, of the kids are interested in, Let's catch up to what they're interested yeah. in. If you want to teach a lesson, hey, use something that they like. Use TikTok. Mm -hmm. Use right. TikTok to put a little video together to really grasp their attention. And I think that's what schools can do. Catch mm -hmm. up to how these kids are learning. Mm -hmm. And stop fighting some of that, right? And and catch yes. up to, like you say, catch up to where they're learning and, and what they relate to. You had also mentioned, this is going to lead me to the next question. You talked mm -hmm. about how back in the day we were told, you know, they're not their friends, don't get to know them. But I, I know that you believe it's very important for teachers to connect with their students and develop mm -hmm. strong, authentic relationships. But again, you know, you also talk about, so let's talk about that first. Let's talk about the connection, that relationship. Uh, professionally, obviously we need to connect with our students, but where do you, where do you see that line, so to speak of, you know, students getting to know you as a person without being too personal. And then I have a second part to this question, but mm -hmm. the first part, let's talk teacher to students where, where for you is that, how does a teacher, what for, for you would be the best way for a teacher to approach connecting with my students personally without necessarily divulging everything about myself personally? Perhaps finding out what it is that the kids struggle with. Uh, most of the times I always, when I'm talking to teachers and uh, we're talking about misbehavior, I talk about how, let's say using an example of if I get a speeding ticket, that doesn't mean to me, I mean, I, I've had several speeding tickets, unfortunately. Sorry, y'all. You know, you get transparency when you hear Rizzo. Yeah. I've, I've had several speeding tickets. Getting a ticket is a piece of paper that hasn't kept me from ever speeding again. That's just like an office referral. Yeah. Giving a kid an office referral is probably not going to fix the problem of why they're misbehaving to begin with. So really coming to the root of what, what is it that's keeping them from wanting to learn? And really finding out. And yes, some of them are going to be difficult. Some of them are going to curse at you because you're trying to find out more about them. They have a wall that they've built up that they don't want to connect with anyone. But we try and we try and we try because we love being in education. We love reaching the hearts of these kids. Mm -hmm. So when we're talking about being personal with them, it's about finding out what it is that they like. I have been able to connect with kids based off of music that I don't even listen to, but I ask them what it is that they listen to. They listen to Drake, who's from Canada, by the way. Yeah, absolutely. Shout out. <laughs> they listen to Drake. 
I mean, I know maybe like two Drake songs, but I share about that one Drake song, two Drake songs that I like. I talk to them about the things that they like to talk about, the things that they want to be able to share with me. At the point of not being too personal, I don't share my whole life story, but if I get to know the kid and I hear the kid say something, then I can say, oh, you know what? I grew up without a dad too, mm -hmm. because it's about making that connection and asking them about what their lives are like and asking them questions. Hey, what do you like to do for fun? Hey, what do you do after school? Hey, blah, blah, blah. Whatever it is that you can use to connect with them. I then start sharing some of my personal stories about the way that I grew up. For example, today I was in the lower Valley community and here in El Paso in the lower Valley, we still have kids that live in poverty. We still have kids that are growing up in single parent homes, knowing that I was able to share that testimony with them about growing up in a single parent home, about drugs affecting our childhood, about growing up in poverty and about growing up with gangs, violence, because it's some of the way that their parents grew up. And then I asked the question of, um, and you see, you, you see me in front of you today covered in tattoos. How many of your parents have tattoos? I mean, 80% of the class's hands went, went up. Yeah. So it's able to find, I'm able to find those things. And I think as educators, we can find those things that interest them and that we can connect with them without sharing too much of ourselves. We find out what they like and see if anything in our lives can relate to that. Right. I Looking think for those connections, right? Looking yes, for those connections. That's how you keep it on a, on a professional level. Right, I'm not right. saying share your whole life story, but if a kid, if you know that a kid is growing up without a father and you grew up without a father as well, there's something that you can share about your life to tell them you're going to be okay. And just because you're right. growing up without a father doesn't mean that you can't be a good dad to your kids. Right, right. Yeah, no, looking for those ways to connect authentically that relate to life experiences. You're not just div divulging your personal story for the sake mm -hmm. of divulging the personal story, but it's the ways to connect, yes. uh, connect to them and make you relatable and empathize and know that they can truly understand that you empathize with their their situation. Yes. You also talk a lot about the importance of teachers connecting to each other. Now, do you mean that also professionally or personally? Do you mean both? Like, why, why is that important for teachers to connect with one another from your perspective? When I talk about the importance of teachers connecting with each other, I think more than anything, number one, professionally. Mm -hmm. Because I do remember the days when I first started teaching where it wasn't okay to go ask a teacher what they were doing for a certain strategy. It was for some teachers, it just wasn't okay. And I never understood why, because I'm the type of person that loves to share. If a kid loves coming to my class and a teacher asks me, why do they love coming to your class? And they don't like, okay, well, what are you doing? You know, this is what I do. Maybe use some of that. So I think connecting on a, pro a professional level to say, if this kid, kid, you know, Adolfo loves coming to your class, what are you doing differently than I am? Because they don't love coming to my class. They're not excited to come to my class. And I think we need to stay away from, oh, no, I'm not going to do what that teacher is doing. Oh, they think, I don't want to use the word jealous. I really don't. But at times, some teachers have looked at each other that way where it's, no, you know, I, I don't want to be like that teacher. But you're not being like that teacher. You're taking ideas from that teacher to help your kids want to come to your class, too. So connecting on a professional level on that way. And then, you know, I, I really do think it is up to the teachers to connect on a personal level. But 
So many times when I come and I visit with campuses, so many times, what is the one thing, I always say the one thing that most educators will have in common is that we've all failed at something in life to be successful. And that we can teach our kids that failure is not the opposite of success, but it's part of success. And if you make a mistake, you stand right up again and do it all over again. I, I have not met a single person that has not made a mistake in their life. Right. So on a personal level, I think that's where we can connect because that's the common that's the common ground for all educators, I think. Yeah, there's that that common experience. It's the camaraderie. Mm-hmm. You know, you always you hear about these fractured staffs where they, you know, again, it doesn't mean that we're all best friends. It doesn't necessarily even mean that we truly like one another. You get on a staff of 120 teachers or, you know, 80 teachers, there's going to be personalities that sort of rub you the wrong way and just kind of, you're just not going to get along with everybody in that sort mm-hmm. of personal sense. But there's also that sense of being personally connected to a shared experience of, yes. of working toward what's what's happening in the school. Uh, just like being on a team, just like being in any group, there's always going to be some you know personalities and things like that. But I think we can find that personal connection that we have a similar kind of shared experience here mm-hmm. in the school. Not just a shared experience, but we're all there for the kids. Correct. Yeah, we're all there absolutely. For the kids and for their success. And yeah. we you can you can work with somebody that you don't necessarily like on a personal level, but don't talk about them behind their back. Don't talk about them right. to the kids because what are you showing what are you teaching the kids? You're teaching that's them right. that that's okay when they, they get their own careers, when they get yeah. to yeah. work with teams. That's a very good, very good uh, catch on your part in terms of that. We put the kids at the center of our experience and we can set our differences aside and work for that common good. You mentioned um, SEL Mm -hmm. and, uh, and, and SEL, of course, right now, the talk of SEL is ubiquitous. Uh, It's everywhere. I, I still think those schools are contemplating what the most efficient and effective manner to implement the ideas of SEL What's the most effective and efficient model? So from your perspective, when you kind of imagine SEL and you imagine the idea, I think I don't think you'll find an educator on this planet who disagrees with the idea of helping students also develop their social emotional sides and learning about themselves and being self-regulatory and Mm self-directed and all of those relationships and all that. But schools still struggle with the how. How do we begin to infuse this? How do we begin to bring this to be a part of our, our daily sort of weekly, monthly, you know, existence as a school. So from your perspective, what are the most efficient and effective models when you envision the ideal? When I envision that, I always think of that, that middle school that I worked at for seven years. This was a Desert View Middle School. Every kid loved coming to school. Every adult loved coming to work. Parents loved coming to our activities. We had school-wide strategies in place that didn't only teach AVID. I don't know if you all have AVID in Canada. Yeah. 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 Um, so we used school-wide strategies that AVID gave us like a fun Friday. If a kid came to school because we were an AVID national demonstra- dem- demonstration school, if a kid came to school on a Friday, they knew that that was an AVID Friday for every single subject in every single class that they were going to go to. And we did mm-hmm fun things. And those avid fun Fridays is where the teachers got to know students on a personal level because they did activities that related to the kids. We did quick writes at the beginning, the first five minutes of class that had nothing to do with content, had a little bit more to do with what's your favorite college? Well, what is, you know, life at home like? We literally had school-wide strategies that every single student knew 
every single day what it was that they were going to do in class. And I think those school-wide strategies is what, yes, it, yes, it took a lot of buy-in. And, and it's going to take buy-in. But if an administration really wants to work towards social-emotional learning, social-emotional learning is just a term that recently just became more popular. But social-emotional learning has been around. AVID yeah. has had social-emotional learning through those Fun Fridays. That was SEL on Fun Fridays. Right. It was giving, doing something with the kids that the kids would enjoy. Asking the kids about their lives, asking the kids about what college they wanted to go to, what career they wanted to have, having fun, you know, while doing games. I think really if we start implementing school-wide strategies where everyone knows what to do as soon as you walk through that door and they know what to do when they're about to leave class, you develop, a, it's, it's a feeling that you can't explain, but you can feel it. You walk into right. a campus everybody smiles at you. You walk into the campus and you know, oh man, like this is different. You feel it. It's right. like, uh, it's like in the movie, in the movie, I'll, I'll walk to remember. You can't, you can feel it. You can't see it, but you can feel it. You can just right. feel it when you walk through those doors. Through yeah. Every staff member, every kid, it's a culture of love is the way that I can describe it. And starting school-wide strategies, is going to take time. It's going to yeah. take time. But doing those school-wide strategies where a kid, uh, you know, is not allowed to leave class the first 10 minutes or the last 10 minutes so that they can focus on making sure they're connected with the teacher for all 30 minutes. If you have a 40-minute class, you know, you have 30 minutes in between where you're just connected and you're yeah. learning. Um, Social-emotional learning, I think, is a lot of things. But if a school can start with school-wide strategies that address those SEL skills, Mm -hmm. and and start with those quick writes finish with the learning logs any school-wide strategy that you want to do where they do uh you know any a fun friday every other friday if they don't want to do every friday but mm -hmm. i think that's where school can start with sel we don't necessarily have to address the competencies of sel like like self-management right. self right get all that through the other things because our kids back then they got all that and they're emotionally intelligent. We didn't have to address each single competency individually. Right. So maybe the answer is to be intentional about creating a level of um, purpose around the social mm -hmm. environment, the culture, social so that this idea, the, the social and emotionally supportive environment, mm -hmm. which lays the foundation for you then to start to get into some of the SEL competencies, as you say, like relationship yes. skills or self-management and all of that as we lay that foundation for sure. I think that's, you can't just necessarily jump. I, I can see the point that you don't necessarily just jump into the competencies without having a norm of, of a kind of social environment that, mm -hmm. that feels supportive and where risk taking is okay and expressing yourself and all of those things are, are kind of the norm. As I said, yes. that allows you to dig a little bit deeper into those competencies for sure. I think that's good advice. Yes. Um, as we sort of finish up here, um, another thing that seems to be because I know you're connected to families as well yes. and parents and and another kind of what I call it maybe a unicorn in uh, <laughs> in the school system is family yes. engage, family engagement um, we all know we all want it uh, every school wants it they but they express frustration that 
they don't necessarily have as much as they want. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I think sometimes it's just too easy to blame the families and the parents and just dismiss them and say, wow, they don't care. They don't care about their kid's mm-hmm. education and craft this narrative or a caricature of the parent who just couldn't care less about their child's education. Mm-hmm. But I don't think it's ever that simple. And I think that that's probably a stretch or a caricature that isn't really true. So what are, when you think about it from the school lens, like I said, I think it's easy to blame the parents and just say, parents and families, you need to be more involved. Well, okay, let's turn that lens around and say, what can schools do from your perspective to develop a more engaged family community? What, what is it that schools can do? Because we can control what we do. So what do we do to, to create that engagement? Yes. So I'm going to go back to pandemic 2020. Okay. I was a counselor at at a combo school where you have um, it, the name of it here in El Paso is Jefferson Silva. Jefferson is your predominantly Hispanic, 99.9% Hispanic. Silva Magnet is a medical magnet school. You have the best of the best of the city of El Paso. The kids have to apply to get there, but it is a combo school. Mm-hmm. A lot of our kids, about 40% of them come from right across the border. I think in 2020, any school that suffered from the same, um, that, that through the pandemic realized that they should have communicated with parents and families a little bit more before the pandemic, what, because kids were not coming to school, but rather working and leaving school to just go work with their parents to help. Mm-hmm. I think they realized that communication needed to be in place before the pandemic, number one. And Many educators thought, yes, you're right. They just don't care. But I really don't think is that they didn't care because this school that I'm talking about, 99.9, shout out to my Jefferson Foxes. I mm-hmm. They hold a very special place in my heart because in 2022, we still had first generation college kids, parents that didn't know any better, that never even graduated high school, that didn't go to college, Parents that didn't know any better. I think a lot of the time it's a lack of knowledge on the parents' part in knowing what do I do next. The pandemic forced parents to be that educator. And that's when they realized, oh my God, this is hard. This is one of the hardest things. You know, I think that's when they started praising teachers a lot more for what they do throughout the day. If the communication level is not up to par between the homeschool environment, we find the ways that they communicate. These kids that were from Juarez, their parents didn't have social media. Their parents had a long distance number. I had to be able to get on my phone and use my plan for Mexico to be able to call them personally. Because And, and, and some teachers will say, but I emailed them. But, I, but some parents don't use email. To this day, there are parents my age that still don't use email because they don't know any better. They haven't come up to par with technology. So it's being able to use all the communication tools that you can use. Call outs are important. Yes. Remind messages are important. Yes. Uh, Google classroom messages are important. Putting things on the website. Some parents don't even use the internet. So it's being able to just pick up that phone and make that phone call to be able to have a better homeschool connection, we need to be able to reach parents in all different ways. Algunos de los papás no hablan, no hablan inglés. Si están mandando un mensaje en inglés, if you're sending a message in English, los papás no van a entender. So you need to be able to speak their language technology-wise, their language, their literal language, being able to speak their language. 
more than anything. What right. is it? What's the way that they communicate? Do they like flyers? Do they read flyers? Use flyers. But I think too many times we get so caught up with, oh, it's so much work. It's so much work to do it all those different ways. And that's where the homeschool connection gets lost, in my opinion. Yeah, I yeah. saw it as a high school counselor because I was a counselor both on the Jefferson end and then on the Silva end where all of my parents were messaging me at all times because you had your high socioeconomic status parents. But I also worked with a very low socioeconomic status parents mm. that I had to pick up a phone and call them personally. Right, right. So rather than thinking about it, how do families engage with the school? Maybe we think, how does the school engage with the family yes. and making sure that we can yes. communicate with them? Yeah, I think yes. that's a really great and, and, lens to, which to examine that. Customer service, Tom. Yeah. They are our customers. You're and right. so many times I've seen parents be so unhappy with the school because they come to school and they're just not treated with kindness. Right. So communication at their level and customer service. There, there can be a cultural component to this as well, too. I know I've had conversations in the past where some have indicated that with certain cultures, they defer to the school. So they're not going to be calling every day. They're not going to be emailing every day because they defer to the school and they trust the school and the school is doing the job mm -hmm. with education. So I think sometimes we can misinterpret a lack of communication as a lack of caring where... Mm there's complete trust in the school. Would you subscribe to that? I, I don't, again, I don't want to paint it as a monolith, but I, I do think there are some cultural aspects that we could be well, more well-versed in to understand the intimacies of the communication mm -hmm. styles and, and the way schools are viewed. What, what are your thoughts on that? So I, when I worked at Silva, a lot, a lot of the parents were that way. Hey, I'm mm -hmm. entrusting you with my kid. And if it, and had, and I had their full support, if the kid made a mistake or if the kid, right. the kid got in trouble for something, I had their full support. No, nope, you mm -hmm. do what you need to do. Right. I unfortunately had a kid that, that I had to take care of. Even though I was a counselor, I was a woman of all trades. <laughs> mm -hmm. I had to take care of because he cheated, you know, from a, from a friend's uh, paper when they were completing an assignment. Parents yeah. said, Miss Rizzo, you do whatever you need to do. So I think, yes, most of the time, but I see it, uh, God, I, you know, I've seen it at both levels on the low socioeconomic and the high socioeconomic, the mm -hmm. low because of the fact that they don't really know and the high because they want high expectations for their kids. Right. Interesting. Yeah. I think there's a lot of layers to it, but if we can just, we need to engage the families and I think we'll probably have more success if we try to meet them where they are for sure. Yes. Um, we get two questions as we finish up Rizzo. Uh, this is the first question I ask everyone who comes on the podcast. You can take this in any direction you want to. It can be on the theme that we've been talking about, or you can go in another direction. But the question is simply educationally speaking, what keeps you up at night? Educationally speaking. What keeps you up at night? I think, uh, I think it's important that kids graduate from high school and move on to really, I really think Tom long gone are those days where it's, you have to go to college. You have to go to college. You have to go to college. Mm -hmm. If I could rewind my life, th this really does, you know, it really is in my heart recently as a high school counselor. I, I did six years as a counselor and things changed every single year, but where we are now is it worries me that too many kids are going to be told you have to go to college. And this is coming from a high school counselor. Okay. I, I, I support college, but too many kids are going to be told you have to go to college and college just might not be for that kid. Yeah. So what keeps me up is no, is, is hoping 
that other educators out there understand that, hey, it's now college, career, or military. And some kids go straight into entrepreneurship and are extremely successful because they just know the business. And we see it now. Things are very different than they were 20 years ago when I first started teaching. Things are very different. And a kid can turn 18 and become a social media influencer. And that's a business and make more money than their parents ever will being, you know, having a college education. If I could rewind time, rewind time, I would have hoped that somebody would have told me that it wasn't all about college and that I could be successful doing other things. Um, I, I, I hate to say that as a counselor, but it's just something that we have to try to come to terms with that. It's not just about college. What about careers? What if they want to go straight into their tech school? What if they want to go straight into entrepreneurship, military? Mm -hmm. Right. That has always been the traditional path, right? And I think a lot of times mm -hmm. it's it's challenging for families, parents, adults, teachers, educators to get their heads around the idea that maybe, you know, maybe college isn't for some. And mm -hmm. yet there are so many pathways to success, as you say, whether it's the trades, it's entrepreneurship, it's it's all of it that allows kids to be successful. And uh, it, we may need to expand our our view of what it means to to sort of create a life for ourselves post-graduation, for yes. sure. So I think Last that's what, that's what worries me because yeah, the fact that it's coming from a counselor, but because yeah. I saw so much of it with the kids saying, sure. I don't want to go to college. Right, right. And yet that was the pathway that was being yes. forced upon them but yes. with, with parents and pressure. Um, Last question as we finish up here, Rizzo, is uh, on a little bit of a lighter note. Um, you live in El Paso. Uh, I love food. So I want to know, where's the best place to eat in El Paso? Okay, I thought about this one long and hard, Tom. <laughs> if you come to El Paso, I will take you to L and J's. Okay, They Tell me about it. have the best. I am a big chicken tortilla soup lover. I, okay. I have tried so many in the city of El Paso. They have the best one. Okay. Um, and then soup. I'll take you across the border to better Mexican food. We'll see <laughs> I'll take it. Y'all that it. are listening out there, you come to El Paso, cross the border, Absolutely. and you're gonna, you're gonna really taste even better food. You get taste even better food. Well, I'll take it. Absolutely, uh, Rizzo. This has been a fascinating conversation, uh, listeners. You can connect with Rizzo. Uh, the handles are pretty much the same. Rizzo speaks life. So if you're on Twitter and Instagram. It'll be at Rizzo Speaks Life. You'll find that on Facebook and LinkedIn. I'll have links in the show notes for all of that. And also the website, uh, www.rizzospeakslife.com. Um, Rizzo, anywhere, any other websites, any other platforms uh, where people can find you or no, find your work? Rizzo Speaks Life on most of the platforms. Absolutely. Rizzo Speaks Life, whatever platform you're on. TikTok as well? You're on TikTok? Yes, TikTok all as right, well. So we'll find Rizzo Speaks Life. Yeah, and yeah. Um, if y'all have uh, teenagers out there that just need that uplifting, I, I do try to post as many Faithful Fridays as I can or uh, Motivational Mondays to be able to lift up yeah. your kids as much as Love possible. It. Love it. Rizzo, uh, it was great to meet you a couple of weeks ago at the conference. Uh, great to have a chance to speak with you. Uh, here today. Fascinating conversation. Um, I love the work you're doing. Uh, very impressed with the impact you're having. So thank you. Um, this was great. Yeah. Thanks for doing this. Thank you, Tom. Honored and blessed. Thank you so much. It was a blessing to meet you. This podcast is a proud member of the Teach Better Podcast Network. Better today, better tomorrow, and the podcast to get you there. You can find out more at teachbetter.com slash podcast. Now let's get back to the episode. In assessment corner this week, we have a listener question from Trent. Here's what Trent wrote. Quote, 
As a consultant at a regional education service, one of the most frequent questions I get as an accountability trainer for my agency, he says, is about high school student motivation for taking state-required ACT tests each spring. Accountability reports just came out in Wisconsin, he says, so high schools that are disappointed with the scores often point the finger at students who don't care about doing their best on the ACT. These students, he says, are typically those who are not intending to enroll in a post-secondary college or program. My question, Trent says, is not specifically about the ACT, but what are the recommendations that I would have, that I would have uh, for secondary school leaders to promote a data and assessment learning culture that would promote student engagement on standardized testing, especially for those students pursuing non-college options? Okay, this is a tough one. I'm going to skip a long rant here about the big picture stuff and get to the question. Many of you will recall my answer the question rant as I opened the podcast several weeks ago, where I was critical of those who were asked a question, and then they proceed, instead of answering the question, they proceed to critique the conditions under which the question emerged. Uh, to me, that's just disrespectful and dismissive. It would be easy for me to go on a long rant about standardized testing and the misuse of standardized testing data, all of that. Easy to do, but when standardized tests are part of your reality and you have no control over their existence, then you have to find a way to make them work in some way. So let me just say a few words about standardized tests. I'll be brief, and then we'll get to Trent's question. Those that assert there is no place for standardized testing in an educational system are dead wrong, full stop. Now, I'm not defending any of the current iterations of testing in any jurisdiction as they currently exist. But the idea to make the blanket statement that there is no place for any of it in any educational system, it's simply absurd. Every single state and every single province and every single jurisdiction that funds an education system with public money has the right to ask the question, is our education system producing the desired results? What are the curricular adjustments we need to make? What are our system's strengths? What needs strengthening? How do we enhance the experiences for our learners in our jurisdiction? Is our public school the great equalizer as it's supposed to be? Or are there inequities and imbalances that we need to address? Again, I'm not defending any current iteration as they exist right now, because I think there's a lot to critique about both the execution and the misuse of the large-scale assessment data. If large-scale assessment were left to large-scale decision-making, that would be ideal. Okay. So I, anyway, I said I'd be brief. I've talked about this before on the podcast, and I had Tom Gusky on back in February of 2021 to talk about standardized testing as well in a bonus episode, so you can check that out as well. Okay, so let's get to Trent's question. I think the key to being able to do, as Trent writes, to be able to promote a data and assessment learning culture that would promote student engagement on standardized testing is finding ways to use the data that emerges in a meaningful way. If the data has some real and authentic utility, then I think we can maybe increase the levels of engagement. Look, we know student motivation is complex. What motivates one student may have the opposite effect on another. There are so many layers to motivation that we may not be even privy to, so we may not have control over. So I'm sure there's probably not going to be a generic answer that satisfies all students in terms of how do you motivate each and every student. So I'm, I'm sure that what I'm about to say won't be enough for some students. Okay, we know that. But having said all of that, I would approach this by trying to create an authentic use of the data 
that benefits either the school or benefits the students themselves or both. So first, I'd make an appeal to the students by authentically demonstrating to them and being overt with this, how the school intends to use the data to improve the quality of education for the students in the school. Imagine if you told your students that the results of the standardized tests are going to cause us to look in the mirror and examine what we need to do to improve your experience, that we're going to do less judging of you and we're going to do more judging of ourselves. Now this has to be authentic, right? But if we could say to the students, we need your authentic investment in the assessment so we can get better at what we do. I think that takes on a different tone. Look, I know that's gonna be difficult because there's a lot of external judging that goes on and a lot of times these kids opt out because they don't wanna be reminded about some of the struggles they've had or some of the challenges they have with learning and all of that stuff. So it's just better to look cool than look stupid. That is a timeless phenomenon with, with young people. It's, adults do it too, so let's not pretend it's just kids, but there's so much external judging that goes on in society about standardized test results. But if we can, inside this school, try to minimize that and marginalize that and focus on the reflective exercise of continual improvement, I think we can actually appeal to at least some students to give us a more authentic investment in the assessment. Now, we're going to have to demonstrate this to them because if we just say this, they're not, they're not necessarily going to take our word for it. So we have to show them how we're going to be overtly reflective about the results and take a disproportionate amount of responsibility in terms of their learning and just saying, we want to continue to improve. Now, I know some people are going to think to themselves right now, how about we make the standardized assessments themselves more engaging? Yep, yep, got it. No problem. Good idea. Never thought of that. So any of you classroom teachers out there have any influence over the statewide testing in your, in your state? No? Yeah, that's what I thought. So can you see what I mean by how unhelpful that, why don't we just make the standardized tests more engaging? Oh, wow, that's a good one. You see how unhelpful that is when you answer questions that way. So I'm going on a bit of a tangent here, but when someone asks a question, answer the question and don't start critiquing the conditions. You know, how about we make the standardized tests more engaging? Yeah, okay, insightful, great, awesome. Completely unhelpful in this situation to Trent. Okay, thanks for listening. <laughs> Just, I'm on a bit of a rant here. All right, back, back to focus, back to Trent's question. All of this has to be authentic. So it may take some time to figure out how to use the data to improve our programming, our teaching, and what the students are learning, or and, and, and even figure out if there is a way. And faculty members, we need to be fully on board with this, this reflective approach. If we do that, we actually might be able to clear, like be, be able to make it clear, I should say, make it clear to our students how much an authentic effort on the standardized test will matter to us and we can appeal to that. Will that work? I have no idea. It might for some. You're asking students to engage and care about something that for them likely seems quite artificial and unnecessary. So it's tough, but that's what I would try to do at first. I would try to see if I could appeal to them to say, we need an authentic investment on your part because we need to know how we can continue to get better as professionals. Now, the other way, of course, is to see how much utility the data can have for the student themselves. I mean, assessment data is always more relevant when it's something we use. It's not just something we gather or something we collect. 
So engagement is really never going to be maximized unless the students themselves see how there is a clear and direct benefit and a direct impact on them. Again, I know that could prove to be challenging given the current iterations in most jurisdictions of what standardized testing looks like, but it's worth trying, isn't it? Like a finding, of course, this again has to be authentic. And, and finding an authentic way to prove this to students is going to be challenging. Like how do you create relevance and engagement on a standardized test? I mean, that's, that's a tough one. But for me, if, if we want to at least try to increase students' willingness to engage with a standardized test, we need to first make sure that any of our efforts are authentic. This is not about trickery, okay? We're not trying to trick them or double talk them into doing something that, well, like we have to be above board with this. We have to be, uh, um, you know, honest with them about what we're doing. But I think if we approach this by saying either or both, right, this is going to help us and or this is going to help you, if we can approach this like that, I think we have a chance to increase engagement. I'm not naively optimistic about this, as I think this is a tough, tough question. For you know, I, I don't even know if there's an array of answers that, uh, given the current iterations of standardized testing in, in most jurisdictions, I don't even know if there is an authentic answer to this question, but I'm trying to answer it in terms of more generically. We can rail against standardized testing all we want to, and, and maybe we should, but in the meantime, they're not going away. So maybe it's worth trying to see if we can bring some authenticity to the use of the data. We have to try, because maybe this question of engagement for students forces us to find some real utility with the data that emerges from standardized testing, right? Can we? Can we do that? I, I don't know. Maybe, I'm not sure if we can. But we should at least try, since these tests, these standardized tests, for so many of you and so many of your students are a significant part of your current reality. Okay, that's it for this week. Remember to follow the podcast on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, and TikTok. Also, please email the podcast, tomshimmerpod at gmail.com if you've got questions for Assessment Corner or if you have any suggestions or feedback for me about the podcast, I'd really appreciate that. And a reminder to check the show notes for the link for the upcoming uh, Grading from the Inside Out, uh, December 1st, 2nd in Minneapolis. Next week, my guest will be Eric Sable. Eric is the Director of Student Services for a K-8 district in Marin County, California. But more relevant to the conversation, he is a co-founder of Global School Play Day. He founded that uh, along with his colleagues in 2015. So that is going to be the focus of our conversation next week. Please subscribe, please rate and review the podcast, especially on Apple Podcasts. And if you haven't done a rating on Apple Podcasts, I'd really appreciate that. It really helps sort of grow the podcast's reach. A rating and review on any platform, of course, will do that. But would really appreciate it if you would just take a second to either just leave a star rating or even a, even a comment just to kind of spread the word about the podcast. I, I certainly would appreciate that. If you like what you hear, also please keep spreading the word about the podcast to your friends, your colleagues, or even on social media. I'd also really appreciate that. Have a great week, everyone.